So in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we see that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. It says, He was crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's where we left off last week. And if you think about that, in the previous verses, we see that man was made a little lower than the angels. In verse 9, Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. And one of the contrasts that you can see here is that when God made man, it wasn't his intention that man should die. But then man sinned, and then, of course, the wages of sin are death. But the purpose for, one of the purposes for Jesus becoming a man was for the suffering of death. And as I mentioned briefly last week, in order for Jesus to die, you know, Adam, he was not subject to death until he sinned. Once he sinned, he was subject to death. And if Jesus had come in the nature of Adam before the fall, his nature would not have been subject to death. So in order for him to be subject to death, he needed to take a nature that was affected by sin. So even though he never sinned, he took a nature that had been affected by sin. And so he was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And that gives us the idea that when Jesus died, he died for every man, making it possible for all of us to be saved. And so there's no excuse. He died for every man. So we're going to pick up now in verse 10. <clears throat> and um, we have the microphone f for questions, comments, and also for um, reading passages. So I'd like a volunteer to read verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Over here. All right. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through their sufferings. And verse 11? Yeah, verse 11. Okay, thank you. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, thank you. So there's several things that we're going to take a look at here in Verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> so, in verse 10 it says, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, one of the purposes we see for Christ becoming a man is to bring many sons unto glory. And we talked about this last week, that when man was initially created, he was crowned with glory and honor. And now he, man has sinned, and so Jesus comes to bring back many sons unto glory. And how does he do that? How does Jesus bring many sons unto glory? If you look at the rest of the verse, it says to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, <clears throat> this is where I'm going to point out a couple of other verses. Um, I'd like a volunteer to read Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Same book, same thought. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. 
volunteer right there. It says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Okay. So Hebrews chapter 2 says, To bring many sons unto, the glory, unto glory, the captain of their salvation should be made perfect through suffering. And now what does it say in Hebrews 5? It says, He learned obedience through the things which he suffered, and being made perfect... He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Do you see similar language here? So we see the concept of being made perfect through suffering again. We see that those who follow him will be saved. And Hebrews 5 kind of makes it even clearer. In Hebrews 2 it says the captain of their salvation should be made perfect through suffering. And through that he brings many sons to glory. Well, in Hebrews 5, it says, Jesus was made perfect through suffering by being obedient. And that's what made him perfect. And because of that, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So, in Hebrews 2, it says, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Hebrews chapter 5, Jesus is called the author of our eternal salvation. Captain, author, basically the same concept. And in both instances, he was made perfect through suffering. And in both instances, many sons are brought to glory. Now, can you think of another place in the book of Hebrews that refers to Jesus as the author? In Hebrews chapter 12. And if I could have a volunteer to read Hebrews 12 verses 1 through 4. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> um, Joel, could you read it? Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, yes, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Okay. Hebrews chapter 12, by the time you get to this point in the book, Paul is tying everything together and it's connecting back to the beginning of the book. But let's, before we talk about verses 1 through 4, let's remind ourselves where we came from in chapter 2 and chapter 5. Chapter 2, Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He's made perfect through sufferings. And through that, he brings many sons into glory. Hebrews chapter 5 Jesus learns obedience through suffering. He becomes the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So what does it mean to obey him? Well, whatever it means, it means that you will be one of the sons who are brought unto glory. So we want to know what it means to obey Christ, who is the author of our eternal salvation. He's the captain of our eternal salvation. And Hebrews 12 says, this is how you obey Christ. The same one who, was, who learned obedience through the things which he suffered so that he became your author of eternal salvation. Look to him who's the author and finisher of your faith. 
And in order to obey him, lay aside, or let's, oh, let me quote it accurately, lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. That's what it means to obey him. So we lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. That's what it means to obey God. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and we see that he endured the cross despising the shame. That's where he learned obedience through suffering in one sense. And then in verse 4 it says, Ye have not yet resisted sin unto blood striving against sin. That's a further development of obeying God. Resisting sin unto blood. Jesus did, and he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. And when we obey him, just as Jesus resisted sin unto blood, he was obedient unto death, we will do the same. And so, because Jesus became a man, and because he was obedient unto death, he became the captain or the author of, of our salvation if we, like Christ are obedient unto death. We lay aside every weight, the sin which does so easily beset us, and we run with patience the race that is set before us. And we'll get to Hebrews 12 again, but you can see how the book of Hebrews ties everything together throughout. So Jesus is the captain of our salvation. He was made perfect through suffering. And then verse 11, we're going to spend a little time here. It says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now there's a lot here in this passage. So who is it that sanctifies? It's Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the captain of our salvation. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. Run the race with patience that is set before us. So Jesus is the one that sanctifies us. When we obey him, we look to him. We, the Hebrews 12 experience, that's what it means to be sanctified. <clears throat> and, so and then it says, they who are sanctified. So we see how we are sanctified. And in, in a sense, we see it's by being made perfect through suffering. Resisting sin and the blood. It says, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Now, I want to turn to John chapter 17 and look at a verse quickly. And I'll just read this myself here. In John 17, verse 19, Jesus says, And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. So Jesus was sanctified, and then because of that, we can be sanctified. So you see that in John 17. But going back to Hebrews 2, there's more here. It says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. Now, when it says that Jesus who sanctifies and they who are sanctified are all of one, who is the one referring to here? If you think about this, Jesus is the one who sanctifies. We are the ones who are sanctified, and we are all of one. Now, think about this. In the previous verse, Jesus was made perfect through sufferings, 
in order to bring many sons unto glory. And in Hebrews chapter 1, Jesus is described as the first begotten of the Father. Jesus is the first begotten of the Father. He brings many sons unto glory. Therefore, because he brings many sons unto glory, he's the first begotten, but the sons who are brought to glory are also begotten. Second, third, fourth, fifth, and so on. So when he who sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, they are all of the Father. Jesus is the first begotten Son of God, according to Hebrews 1. We see that that took place at the resurrection. And the sons who are brought unto glory are also the begotten. And in Hebrews 1 it says that we should be heirs of salvation. And in Romans 8 it says those who are the heirs are the sons of God. So all this is saying is that we are all begotten of the Father when we um, become partakers of the salvation that Christ offers us. Now, this is where I find things interesting. Verse 11, the last half of the verse, says, For which cause, because we are all of one, we are sanctified, he sanctifies us. For which cause, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, can you think of a passage in the Bible where Jesus speaks about brethren? Those who are his brethren. Turn to Mark chapter 3. And I want to volunteer to read Mark chapter 3 verses 32 to 35. Mark chapter 3 verses 32 to 35. Right down here. And the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother, or who my brethren? And he looked round about them, and he sat about him and said, Behold, my brother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay. <clears throat> So you know the story. Jesus' brothers and his mother are concerned about what Jesus are doing. They come to try to tell him that he needs to follow the traditions of men. Jesus knows that, and so he doesn't um, go out and talk to them. But he he asks the question, "Who are my brethren?" And in verse thirty-five, what does he say? What does he say about who his brethren are? Those who do the will of God. Now, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. <clears throat> and I'd like a volunteer to read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. So, what does it mean to do the will of God? So, the, those who are the brethren of Christ do the will of God. And what is the will of God? First Thessalonians 4, verse 3, right back there. <clears throat> For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Okay, so what is the will of God here in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3? Sanctification. So 
Who are the brethren of Christ? Those who are sanctified. And Hebrews 2 verse 11 shows that clearly. Jesus is not ashamed to call those who are sanctified his brethren. Who are those who are sanctified? Those who are made perfect through sufferings. Those who obey Christ, the author of their eternal salvation. Those who run with patience the race set before him. They lay aside every weight, the sin which does so easily beset them. They resist sin unto blood. This is the will of God. They are those who are sanctified. They are the brethren of Christ. They are sanctified. So Jesus calls those who are sanctified his brethren. Now, if if you call someone your brother... In a human sense, that means you're related to each other. So those who are sanctified are the brethren of Christ. So if you look at um, going on to verse 12, Jesus is saying those who are sanctified are my brethren. So we are related in a spiritual sense to Christ. And in verse 12 he says, saying... I will thank you. I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the church. Will I sing praise unto thee? Then verse thirteen. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Now, Christ declares the name of us, which are his brethren, to his brethren in the church. And in verse thirteen. <coughs> He comes back to saying, I will put my trust in him. He's speaking of the Father. And when Jesus put his trust in the Father, this is speaking of his humanity. And then when he says, Behold, I am the children which God hath given me. Who are the children here in verse 13 of Hebrews chapter 2? All of a sudden, the word children comes up for the first time. And we've been talking about this concept of those who are spiritually related to Christ. So who are the children? The brethren. So those who are sanctified are brethren. And he calls us his brethren. And then he says that we're children. So, children and brethren, in a sense, spiritually speaking, mean the same thing with respect to Christ. It's a spiritual relationship because he is bringing many sons into glory. So, you could say we're the children of God because we're the sons of God. And yet, those who are sanctified are also called his brethren. So, Jesus says, these are my brethren, these are my children. This is an important point because... What we've shown so far is that Jesus is made perfect through suffering and to bring many sons into glory. And those who obey him are his children or are his sons. And those who are sanctified are his brethren. So when we come to verse 13 and he calls us his children... These are the same as his brethren. These are the same that do the will of God. And that's a key point to understand then verse 14. So I'd like a volunteer 
to read verse 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15 of Hebrews chapter 2. Right back here. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Okay. So chapter, chapter 2, verse 14. Thank you. It says... For as much then as the children, who are the children? They're also his brethren. For as much then as the children, who are his brethren, these are those who do the will of God, these are those who are sanctified. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, notice what it says. He also himself likewise took part of the same. Now, how many ways does Paul need to say the same thing? He also himself likewise took part of the same. Speaking of Jesus. What are the children partakers of? They're partakers of flesh and blood. What is Jesus? He also himself likewise took part of the same. Flesh and blood. And who are the children again? Those who are sanctified. So Jesus, just as the children who are sanctified are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And then the rest of the verse is that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. And this comes back to the point of verse 9, that Jesus became a man for the suffering of death. In order for Jesus to die and to, to destroy him that had the power of death, he needed to be a partaker of flesh and blood. And again, if he took the flesh and blood of Adam before the fall, Adam before the fall was not subject to death. After the fall, obviously he was. Christ then takes the nature of man after the fall, so he is subject to death. So even though he doesn't sin, he, as a human being, is subject to death because of the nature that he has taken. And if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, you can show that the grave could not keep Christ there because Christ did not sin. And it says the sting of death is sin. So Christ never sinned, so the grave couldn't hold him. And because he lived a perfect life, when he died, he destroyed the devil who had the power over death so that all those who die in Christ will not stay in the grave. So there's, so there's some good news here on two levels here. Christ became a partaker of flesh and blood in the same manner that his children are, those who are sanctified, and he destroyed the devil who had the power over death. And actually in last week's class I made a misstatement. I said he destroyed death. It says he destroyed him that had the power of death. That is the devil. So okay. So he delivered them who, were, who, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now I want someone to read then verses 16 through 18 of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 16 through 18. Continuing the, this concept of the humanity of Christ. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 16 through 18. For verily I say unto you, for verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. 
Wherefore, in all things, it behoved them to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliations for the sins of, of the other of the people. For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to he is able to succor them that are tempted. Okay. Thank you. So this is speaking of Christ. And um in verse 16 it says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Now, was Abraham born before the fall or after the fall? Well, he was born after the fall, obviously. So Jesus took on him the seed of Abraham. So that's the first point. But then verse 17 comes back to this concept we've been talking about, who are the brethren of Christ. Let's review that point briefly. In verse 11 of chapter 2, it says, For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. So who are the brethren? Those who are sanctified. And in Mark 3, we saw that those who do the will of God are his brethren. And 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, The will of God is your sanctification. So those who are sanctified are the brethren of Christ. And in verse 17, it says, In how many points was Jesus made like his brethren who are sanctified? In how many points? It says, in all points. So, Jesus was made in all points like his brethren. And who are his brethren? Those who are sanctified. And here's another question. Those who are sanctified today, do they have an unfallen or a fallen nature? They have a fallen nature. But, those who are sanctified, they're doing the will of God. They're following God. They are sanctified. So their lives are under the control of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, he was made in all things like his brethren. So <clears throat> Jesus, and if you can read this in, in the book of Luke, it says the Holy Spirit came over Mary. Jesus was that holy thing. So you can make the point that Jesus was born from the very beginning under the control of the Holy Spirit. And yet he had the same flesh and blood that we have. He also himself likewise took part of the same. And yet he was under the control of the Holy Spirit. We are not when we are born. And inevitably we choose to sin. But then when we are born again and come under the control of the Holy Spirit and live a sanctified life, at that point there is no difference between us and Christ. We have a fallen nature, but it's under the control of the Holy Spirit. Christ had a fallen nature that was under the control of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning. So if Christ had a fallen nature that was under the control of the Holy Spirit from the very beginning, and we have a fallen nature that's under the control of the Holy Spirit after we are born again, here's the question. How are we tempted after we come under the control of the Holy Spirit? Do we never get tempted again? Are we only tempted externally by things that only to tempt us on the outside, or do we have temptations that come from the inside as well? 
obviously we have temptations from the inside. So Christ was made in all things like his brethren who are sanctified. So yes, he's under the control of the Holy Spirit, but he still has the same type of temptations that we have. So then you go to Hebrews chapter 4, 15 and 16, and it says, he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. And when the Bible says tempted in all points like as we are, that's what it means. It doesn't say in all points like as we are externally yet without sin. It says in all points like as we are. So Jesus was made. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren in all things. And why was he in all things made like to his brethren? says that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So what kind of a high priest do you want to have? Jesus is merciful and faithful. And he can be merciful and faithful because he understands what it's like to be a human being. He knows the the frailties and the weaknesses that are common to man. Jesus partook of that himself. And because of that, he can be merciful to us and he can be faithful to us. And then in verse 18, it says, because he hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them, which means to help them that are tempted. So he was tempted in all points like as we are. And because of that, and notice, he suffered being tempted. So he knows that to be tempted is to suffer. And yet in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, There is no temptation that has taken you, but as such as is common to man. But God will, with the temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. That's a merciful and faithful high priest. He's merciful because he doesn't allow you to be tempted above that which you were able to. He was a human being, and he knows through the power of God what you can handle and what you can't handle. And so, because of that, he is a merciful and faithful high priest. And with his ministry as a high priest, he makes it possible for us to overcome the temptations that we face. That's why when you come to Hebrews 4, we come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy from our merciful high priest and grace to find help in time of need. And Jesus helps us to overcome because he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. So if you wonder why the nature of Christ is such a controversial topic in the Adventist church anymore. It's because the devil knows that if you understand that Jesus is truly a human being, that's the key to receiving help to overcome sin in your life. And the devil knows that if, if God's people obtain victory over sin, his, his game's over here on this earth. And so one of the things that he's going to attack is an understanding of the humanity of Christ so that we will lose a proper concept of how to receive help from God to overcome sin in our life. And if the devil can do that, he can delay 
the sealing of God's servants in Revelation 7, and that will delay the four winds being unleashed. That will delay the second coming, and the devil will have more time to do his work here on this earth. So, if you wonder why this is controversial, that's why I believe it is. But the truth of the matter is, the Bible makes it very clear, and whatever other people may want to say about the humanity of Christ, it's good enough for me when the Bible says, in all things that behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. He was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. I don't see how you get around that. And to me, that's good news. Why would it be bad news that Jesus was made in all things like us and gives us an example? That's why we can look to him as the author and finisher of our faith in Hebrews 12 because he ran the same race and because he ran it, we can run it. And that's why the 144,000 in Revelation 14 follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth because they learn to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. We have a comment in the back here, if we could, right back there. It's interesting. It says, suffered being tempted. We think of the suffering of Christ on the cross and in other places uh, as a result of physical and mental anguish that he went through. But this isn't talking about that type of suffering. It's just talking about suffering being tempted. Yeah which tells us in regards to the nature that he was. Adam didn't have the capacity to, before the fall, to be tempted from within. Uh, But he also made it clear by saying, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So he made a (laughs) distinction there. And what you said about uh, uh, this being a key is very clear. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. I was going to go there. Make that connection very clearly. That's, that's a key. Can I read that verse sure. to go along with what you're saying? Yes, go First ahead. 1 Peter 4, verse, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2, speaking of how Christ was suffered being tempted. And thank you very much for that comment. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Now notice this. Where did Christ suffer? It says Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. And then it says arm yourselves likewise with the same flesh. It says arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. Which reminds us of Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. What was the mind of Christ? He suffered being tempted. So where is the temptation? It's in the mind. And that's not external. That's internal. That's where Christ suffered. And that's why Christ said, if it be possible, let this cut pass for me, but not my will, but thine be done. And what's the will of, what's sanctification? Doing the will of God. Jesus did the will of God. And those who are sanctified will also do the will of God, which can involve suffering. So thank you very much for that comment. And we had a comment down here as well, if we could get the microphone. One of the things that uh, Paul brings out, if you've been coming to the Wednesday prayer meetings on the book of Romans, it's very beneficial along with this study. But we see here in Jesus the one element by which God is able to bring about the good news, the salvation of human beings, 
And that's the union of divinity with this humanity right. that we were being described. Yeah. Without this union, man would be lost. Yeah. And it's in the one person of Jesus Christ yeah. where we find the gospel, where mm. God and humanity are brought together in one. Mm. And this is what it means when it says that we are all brought together in one. Yeah. They're all of one. All of one. Yeah. All of one. Thank you very much. So, <clears throat> so that's Hebrews chapter 2. Now, for those of you who may not have heard the comment, we see that with the salvation of man, we see divinity and humanity coming together to, to bring salvation. Amen. And, you know, in... First Peter, or I'm sorry, I think it's Second Peter chapter 1, that we become partakers of the divine nature. So we don't, when we become sanctified, we don't just stay in a fallen human nature, we become partakers of the divine nature, um, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now, chapter 1 has shown us that Jesus is God. Chapter 2 has shown us that Jesus is man and that he was completely man. And that his humanity is the same as a sanctified fallen human being. So someone with a fallen nature who is sanctified doing the will of God. And because of those two things, Jesus is qualified to be our high priest. He's able to help those who are tempted. And when you get to chapter 3 verse 1, and we're, we're not going to go too far into chapter 3, but just to show you how... Paul ties chapter 1 and chapter 2 together to the beginning of chapter 3. It says in verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, who are the brethren, those who are sanctified, and the word wherefore means because of what I said in chapter 1 and chapter 2, wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Now here's an interesting point. We are called to consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. In Hebrews 12 it says, For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in, in your mind. Ye have not yet resisted sin unto blood, striving against sin. So here we're told to consider him who is the apostle and high priest of our profession. It's interesting, this is the only place in, the, in Scripture that at least that I'm aware of, that Christ is called the Apostle. He's also called the High Priest of our profession. Now, what's interesting is he's referred to here as Christ Jesus. And um, one thing Emil Andreasen points out in his book, the book of Hebrews, and if you don't have this book, you should get it. Um, the name Jesus refers to Jesus in his humanity, and the name Christ refers to him in his divinity. Amen. So when you get to chapter 3, verse 1, he's the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. Chapter 1 has shown us he's divine. Chapter 2 shows us he is man. And chapter 3, verse 1 says, Christ Jesus. He's God and he's man. He's the God-man, Christ Jesus. Amen. That qualifies him to be the apostle and high priest of our profession. And I'm thankful that we have an apostle and high priest of our profession. And the next thing that, that Paul is going to do, then he's going to compare Christ to Moses. But what he's effectively done to the Hebrews of his time is in the first century, he's saying, look, you know Jesus Christ who came and died on the cross 
and he was truly a man and he was truly God, he's really the apostle of our profession. So don't look to Moses anymore, look to Christ. And um, you don't need to go to the temple anymore to see what the high priest is doing in the temple in Jerusalem because Christ is the high priest of our profession. And because of that, there's no point in the temple in Jerusalem anymore. And if the Jews got that point, they wouldn't be tied down to Jerusalem in 70 AD when the Roman army showed up. So this is a key point. So Jesus is the apostle and the high priest of our profession. And I'll just keep going here until they stop us, I guess. So starting in verse 2, it says, He was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built of the house hath more honor than the house. Now notice this. Paul is not cutting down Moses here. He's saying, look, Moses was faithful in all his house. He was a great man. But Christ is better. And in chapter 1, Christ was better than the angels. Chapter 3, Christ is better than Moses. And actually in chapter 2, Christ is a better man than any other man there's ever been. So Christ is better than the angels in chapter 1. Christ is better than any other man in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, Christ is better than Moses. And he is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And this is an important point. The Jews needed to understand that Christ is better than Moses. Don't look to the Mosaic law. Look to Christ. And we will continue this concept next week as we go through chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a pretty quick chapter. But think about these things. Christ is truly God. Christ is truly man. And this is what we look to for our eternal salvation. He is the author of eternal salvation. So thank you. And we will continue next week with Hebrews chapter 3.